If you read a lot of books by one author, you'll find over time that you begin to think like that author. You recognize familiar patterns, and you develop a sense not only for the kinds of stories that they tell, but the way that they tell those stories. When we immerse ourselves in Scripture, we get insight into the kinds of stories that God tells. You learn more about God's favorite stories, the themes and narratives that He likes to repeat. And we see one of the big themes that God uses over and over again in the history of His people and His sovereign plan for the world. We hear it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That last phrase is key. Everything God does is to show that we can't boast. Everything good that happens, all of redemption, is the boast of God. It is God demonstrating that He is the one who destroys enemies. He is the one who redeems. He is the one who saves. He's the one who gives us our power. God loves reversing the wisdom of the world, which means that the way He works is going to contrast with the way that the world works. And in Zechariah chapters 4 and 5, we see that divine reversal through three visions that show us the grace of God at work in the midst of sin, through the work of imperfect sinners. And it's all meant to show us that it's by the power of His Spirit and not our might or strength that His good purposes are accomplished. This is Understanding Zechariah. Zechariah chapters 4 and 5 give us three visions. The first is a vision of two olive trees feeding oil into a lampstand. The second is a vision of a flying scroll. And a third, a vision of a woman in a basket lifted up by two women with stork wings to the city of Shinar in Babylon. So that's just a brief outline. We'll go more in-depth into each of these three visions. So let's look at that first vision, a vision of two olive trees feeding oil into a lampstand. This is chapter 4, verses 1 to 14. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice, and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my lord. 
And he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. One of the ways to make books like Zechariah, which can be a little foreign to us, a little more accessible, is to remember our North Stars. It's to remember the point. Zechariah is receiving these visions from God to encourage Israel, the returned exiles who've just spent about 70 years in exile in Babylon, who are now finally back to their homeland. He's encouraging them to continue the work of rebuilding the temple. Now, Israel at the time is under Persian rule. Persia conquered Babylon, so they're the new rulers of Israel. And Israel is given permission to rebuild their temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. And there are two figures that are at the head of this. There's Joshua the high priest, and if there's a high priest, that means the temple will be rebuilt. And there's Zerubbabel, who is this governor. He's sort of a king-like figure, although he's not truly a king, but he is in the line of David. And so even embodied in these two characters is the hope of the future of the nation. And so chapter 3, which talks about Joshua the high priest, and chapter 4, which is dealing with Zerubbabel, the governor, they work together. They parallel one another. It's as though God is saying, if I'm going to work through these two men, I'm working for your ultimate future, the future of Israel, the future of my people, and I'm going to fulfill my promises through them. But what's the difficulty? Well, they're discouraged. Israel has stopped their temple rebuilding project for about 16 years because of infighting and hostility and difficulties. It just doesn't seem like the great time of restoration they thought would happen after they returned from the exile. And so this is what the visions are meant to do. They're meant to encourage the people of Israel to continue working by giving them a vision, by using their imagination, by giving, by using the things that surround them, this temple imagery, this agricultural imagery, to inform their minds to see what they can't yet see, to see the future that they can't yet see in the present, the future of God's glory and of God's work. And He's also trying to reveal to them, and I think this is really the thesis of this entire chapter, it's not by your power or might or strength that you're going to rebuild the temple or that you're going to accomplish the purposes that God has for you, but rather it's by His Spirit. And that is the key to understanding this strange dream-like sequence featuring a golden lampstand and two olive trees dripping oil into a bowl, which keeps the flames of the seven uh, lips of the lamp uh, illuminated. So the seven lamps are continually giving off light. Now, this idea of light is really important. Scripture often speaks of God's glory as a light that radiates out into all creation. And that light helps you see things. It helps you understand the truth. Truth itself is seen as light because it uncovers the darkness. It reveals things for what they truly are. And so this lamp symbolizes that light. It, it illuminates the temple. And it receives this inexhaustible supply of oil from the two olive trees. Think about that. If you want to keep a lamp burning, you need oil. If you run out of oil, the light goes out. But here is a source of light that never goes out. And it's difficult for us to think about this because we live in a technological culture. So it's not like if you go into the temple, you would be able to just flip on a light and you'd see lamps in the corner and be like, oh, that's a cool little religious decoration. No, the, the lampstand is what lit up and illuminated the entire temple. Without it, you couldn't see what was inside. And so there's this necessity that this light must keep shining. And the only way that this light continues to shine is because it continually receives this supply of oil coming from two olive trees. And again, how does this relate to the North Star, to the main point that we learn? Well, the angel basically tells uh, 
uh, Zechariah, here, here's the point. Here's what the image is supposed to tell you. It's supposed to encourage you that it's not by your might or by your power, but by my spirit, by the spirit of God, that your light continues to shine, that Israel is going to be reborn, that there is a future for the people of God. Everything is about the grace of God, right? If you think about back in chapter 3, what is the only way that there can be atonement for sin, that, that Joshua the high priest, his robe that's filthy can be made clean? It's the mercy of God. It's the sovereign grace of God. Everything is dependent upon God, and this vision is meant to push that into the forefront. So God wants Zechariah to tell Zerubbabel, the governor, you know, you got to imagine every day he's walking outside, he's seeing the lay people, they're working on the, the temple, they're disgruntled, maybe they're frustrated, maybe they're sad, and he's got to figure out like, man, is God doing something in our midst? And Zechariah is given this message to tell Zerubbabel, yes, yes, he is, right? God is supplying the oil, energizing the people, and he's going to ensure that the light of his people never gets extinguished. And he's going to make sure that his light continues to radiate out into the world. That's such good news. It's not up to us to make sure that God's light radiates. He's going to do the work, and we are meant to be a part of that, to be a partakers of that. But he's the one leading that charge. He's the one really in front of the rebuilding project of the temple. Now, the, the, the claims are crazy. He says, by my power, Zerubbabel, you're going to be able to flatten great mountains into a plain. Right, that might be a reference to conquering Israel's enemies. Right? Only by the power of the Spirit will the temple come to completion. Only by the power of the Spirit will you be able to see God begin to restore what was lost in the exile. Now, Zerubbabel, I keep mispronouncing his, it's, it's hard to say it a bunch of times over and over again, right? Zerubbabel comes uh, and realizes that, that he doesn't just work alone, right? But the seven eyes of the Lord are patrolling the world. Now, this is a difficult thing to interpret. I'm not exactly 100% sure what it might be, but seven is the number of fullness or perfection. And God's eyes that patrol the world, that's kind of like his spirit. His spirit is going everywhere, right? So it might be that by the spirit who not only helps rebuild the temple, but also the spirit who knows everything that's going on in the world. He knows that Persia is ruling over Israel, and that's not the final state that God desires. He knows that there are ma massive nations that are threatening Israel. God has his eyes upon the world, and he's going to ensure that God's plans come to pass. It's kind of like his eyes are looking over a blueprint, or his eyes are watching as people are constructing. God is paying attention. That's really important for them. They have to know that we're just this tiny little group of returned exiles. We have no power. We have no political might. We're just, we're just nobodies. But God's eyes are patrolling the world on their behalf, and God's eyes are also on them. He knows what they're going through, right? And that's why Zechariah reminds him, don't don't worry. If you despise a day of small things, if you're sitting there and you're like, man, this is not, this temple restoration, this return from exile, it's just not what, it, it, just not what I thought it would be. It's not all that it was cracked up to be. All the prophets had talked about the return from exile. It seems so glorious and this just doesn't seem like it. And, and Zechariah is telling them, don't, don't worry. Don't worry because God is going to make sure you rejoice one day. That what is beginning so small and humble is one day going to blossom. Right? And this is what we learn, and this is how prophecy works. And I've said this before, prophecy, imagine seeing a mountain range. You see two mountains, they look like they're flat on top of each other. But as you get closer to the first mountain, you realize there's miles of space in between them. And what's happening is they've gotten to the first mountain, they've returned from exile, but the time of flourishing and restoration is still miles, miles ahead. 
But the fact that they've reached the first mountain is showing that things are still progressing and they should keep obeying and trusting. If God brought you to the first mountain, he will sure enough bring you to that second mountain. And that's the idea that he's trying to give. So God's spirit is going to empower their work. Now, commentators are divided on the latter portion of this because uh, it says that there are these two olive trees and they're pouring oil into the lampstand. And these are two branches of the olive trees, and they're, they're piping in oil, golden oil. And uh, Zechariah asks, well, we're all asking, do you, do you not, or rather, sorry, the angel asks Zechariah, do you not know what these are? And Zechariah's like, no, no, my Lord, I don't really know. And the angel says, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, some commentators think that the two anointed ones are Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, but I think they're actually talking about the two prophets that are speaking to Israel at the time, Zechariah and Haggai. Because if the oil is the spirit coming from these trees, if the trees are the prophets, what are they doing? They're giving the oil of the Holy Spirit through their prophecies, through their word. The word and spirit come together, and it's through the spirit-empowered word going into the community that the light is going to illuminate the world, right? It's through the spirit-wrought words of God, through the instrument of these prophets, that Israel's going to shine, that the glory of God is going to be magnified among Israel. And as long as that's true, as long as the spirit is working, there's always going to be hope. But I love how he shows Zechariah, you've got a purpose in my plan. Haggai, you've got a purpose in my plan. Maybe you're prophesying and you're just like, man, nothing's happening. But he's saying, no, the spirit is working through you. What you're doing matters. And we need you to keep proclaiming this word to empower God's people by the spirit to continue to work and to continue to obey and continue to trust God in the midst of great obstacles. Now, when we get to chapter five, we get two additional visions that are also a little strange. The first one is of a flying scroll, and the second one is of a woman in a basket. So let me read out chapter five, and we'll talk about these two remaining visions. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel of the Lord who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base." 
The first vision of chapter 5 parallels the second vision of chapter 5 in many ways. They both feature flying objects. So you've got a flying scroll, and you've got a basket lifted up by two women with stork wings. Right? That's, that's kind of the idea, that they're flying around. So both deal with sin. The flying scroll handles Israel's internal sin of stealing and swearing falsely, whereas the woman in the basket symbolizes Israel's sin flying out to Shinar, which is in Babylon. So these details indicate that the exile is the primary historical referent for these visions. Now, just as a brief review, God promised Israel that if they obeyed him, they would prosper and live long in the land. But if they disobeyed God, they would be exiled and they would sit under the reign of pagan rulers. So this happens at the end of the book of Kings when Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon destroys Jerusalem and its temple and drags Israel into exile. But God also gives a provision of grace. If Israel returns to the Lord, he will return them to the land and restore them. And that's what happens in Ezra and Nehemiah under the edict of Cyrus, the Persian king. So now that Israel once again dwells in their homeland, what's going to be the threat? That they're going to make the same mistake, right? That's one of the tragedies of being human. You repeat the same mistakes. And so the flying scroll is an image to remind them, hey, remember what happened before. Remember how you got into exile. Now, a flying scroll that's written on both sides is a Jewish scroll of divorce. So God is reminding Israel of their marriage vows through his words, which expose hidden sin. So the exiles may have physically returned to the land, but it doesn't mean that their hearts have returned to the Lord. So God is still sanctifying his people even after they return from the exile because he wants more than just them to come back to safety. He wants their sanctification, their progressive holiness. He wants them to actually be transformed from the inside out. So if they steal or if they deceive people with words or if they swear falsely, they're going to face the discipline of God. God is still faithful. And that means both in his curses and in his judgments. God will build his house, the temple, but also his house, his family, right? his household. And this requires that all opposing houses of wickedness be torn down. And that's what God's word does, symbolized by this scroll. It divides. It brings judgment. It doesn't just bring good news, but the good news, if you reject it, becomes a judgment on your head. It exposes the hearts of men. Biblical instruction is moral instruction because God is a God of morality, of righteousness. And that's why Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.17, the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God himself, cuts through us through the means of his word to sanctify us and purify us from sin. So you can see that this scroll goes out and he says that this word of God is a curse. It's a curse to everyone who steals, everyone who swears falsely, everyone who rejects the grace of God, everyone who wants to continue in the rebellion. The word of God becomes a curse, and God's going to send it out, right? And, you know, it's, it's just a reminder that when you share the gospel, it's always going to do something. It's either going to bring them to repentance, or it's going to bring them greater judgment. It's going to it's going to hang over the head. It's going to do something. It's either going to reveal their rebellion or it's going to reveal their repentance. It's going to bring them to confess their sins. But the Word of God is always living and active. It's always going to do something. Now, the Spirit is also bringing judgment on other nations. This is another weird passage. And again, a lot of these things, you know, read it for yourself and try to discern it. 
But a couple things that might help understanding this passage with the woman in a basket carried by women with stork wings. And you, you feel like you sound crazy when you say this, but it's important to just get a handle on what the symbols actually are. So the word basket in Hebrew refers specifically to an ephah, which is a measurement used for temple worship and commerce. And if you read the prophets, some of the minor prophets, some of the major prophets, the prophets repeatedly condemn Israel for financial oppression and temple corruption. In fact, Jesus has the same critiques of the temple. So the fact that it's really an ephah that's being referred to here means this is dealing with spiritual worship. So this woman, she's told, she's identified as wickedness. So she's a symbol. She symbolizes the wickedness of Israel. And what happens is she's in this ephah, this temple worship commerce measurement. She's inside of it and she gets exiled. She gets sent out of Israel to Shinar, which is Babylon. Now, let's just look at this real quickly. These two women, they've got stork wings, so they've got wings. They're over this box, this basket. There's someone inside of it, right? And there's a lid. It says there's a leaden cover. All of these elements we see in the Ark of the Covenant at the center, in the most holy place of the temple. Think about Solomon's temple. There was a holy place, there was a most holy place at the center, and only the high priest could go there, and there was an Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant had different components. It had a lid called the mercy seat. And on that lid were two winged angels called cherubim at each end, and their wings covered the mercy seat. What do we have here? There's two women with stork wings, right, which is an unclean animal, and they're over a, uh, a basket with a lid, right? And the lid, what's inside the Ark of the Covenant, are the Ten Commandments, right? The, the, the tablets. But inside of this basket is a woman called Wickedness. So what we see here is an inversion of the Ark of the Covenant. Instead of two cherubim with wings, it's two unclean women with unclean stork wings, right? The cover is not containing the Word of God, but it's containing the wickedness of men. It's an inverted Ark of the Covenant. So what's, what are we doing here? God is taking that false Ark of the Covenant and removing it and taking it to a pagan nation. He's casting it out. It's kind of like in the Day of Atonement where you would take one of the lambs, one of the goats, and you'd cast them into the wilderness, right? And before you do that is the high priest would put his hand on that goat and confess Israel's sins on its head and then send that goat into, into the wilderness as if to say, we are taking our sin, putting it onto this goat, and this goat is going to go off and go away. It's going to, we're going to remove the impurity from our land. And here, there's a similar thing. This false Ark of the Covenant is being removed. It's being purified from the land and cast off into the pagan nation. Now, what does it mean that there's a place in Babylon? I mean, I don't think this is literal that, that, a, that a false Ark of the Covenant was put in Babylon. I think there's a spiritual significance here. It may refer to God's judgment upon Babylon itself. Now, remember, by the time this prophecy is written, Babylon isn't up. It's, 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 it's destroyed. It's been taken over by the Persians. So maybe God is saying, you know why they were destroyed by the Persians? Because of their, uh, the judgment that they're going to face for taking Israel into exile, right? God does not just rule over Israel, but all the nations of the world. He's going to hold every man to account for his sins, whether Jew or Gentile, right? Now, this might be just showing Israel, I am on your side, right? I'm going to judge those who exiled you. I'm going to plunder those who plundered you. And he's also showing that in this time of renewal, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remove the uncleanness, the wickedness from you. And this might tie into chapter 3 when God 
through Joshua the high priest. He removes his unclean robes and gives him clean ones, and he, he atones for his iniquity. So this might be another symbolic way of showing the effects of that atonement, the casting away of sin from God's people. But the question remains, how can a nation cast away their sin? It's only by atonement accomplished by Christ. He's the scapegoat who takes our sin and gets cast in exile into the wilderness. He's the one who takes the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land and and it falls on him. Galatians 3.13 says, "Redeemed, He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He takes the curse of that double-sided scroll upon himself. And what is this meant to show? That salvation comes not by our might or power, but by the Spirit of God making us alive in Christ, uniting us to the Father, adopting us as his sons, and bringing us into the fullness of redemption. Christ is the cornerstone of the living temple of God's people. He is the one who fills us with the oil of the Spirit that we might shine the light of Christ into a dark world. And if you get lost in Zechariah, just remember, the North Star is, it's always by God. It's God's initiative. It's God's sovereign grace. It's God's power that empowers his people, that brings them salvation, that delivers them. And it's the same God that Zechariah trusted in. It's the same God that we trust in. God is the one that works in our lives. God is the one who loves us and cares for us and provides for us and fights on our behalf. He's the one who casts away our sin. And so our response is to trust him, is to trust him and out of trusting him, obey his word knowing that he's going to fulfill his purposes through us for his glory.